You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening. And follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at InFocus Church. We hope this message encourages you and leaves you feeling challenged to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's good to be able to worship with you today. And as Pastor Robert said a moment ago, had an amazing time this weekend with Every Nation Churches in our region, well over 600 men that were gathered together in Jacksonville, and we took a group with us down there, and uh, just an amazing time of, of worship and of the Word and encouragement, and I believe that the men and their families that were able to go, and we know we had lots of things going on, graduations and all kinds of stuff, so everybody that wanted to go may not have been able to go, or maybe you didn't know about it, or maybe you thought, well, it's not that big of a deal, whatever the case may be. Uh, we hope you can be with us the next time, but man, what a powerful time. Uh, as Robert mentioned, so many amazing things that God's doing in and through us, uh, from the youngest to the oldest, uh, and we're grateful for the grace of God for that, that he does incredible things in our lives. October 14th, 1947, March 23rd, 1929, I don't think anybody, too many of you were alive then. July 16th, 1969. All of those are dates where we as humans did something that before that date was believed to be impossible. On October 14th, 1947, we broke the sound barrier, which before that point was believed to be impossible. On March 23rd, 1929, a little bit laughable, but we, we broke the five-minute mile mark. Some of you could probably do that in here. But before then, it was impossible. July 16th, 1969, maybe some of you remember that. We put somebody on the moon. Anything is possible. Nothing is impossible. You can do the impossible. I mean, that is a, a mantra kind of of our world, right? We're going to, like I could do, if you put your mind to it, if you, if you do enough work and give enough effort in the indomitable human spirit, our culture says you can do the impossible. But really, is that true? See, there's no doubt that over the course of human history, we have done some remarkable people have, have done some extraordinary things. That's true. But impossible? I think the word that we probably need to use is improbable. Because impossible by its very definition means it cannot be done. So we haven't done something that cannot be done. Maybe we believe that it couldn't be done. Like an impossible mission. Like how is it possible that we're doing another Mission Impossible movie? How is it possible that Tom Cruise is still 35? Like he doesn't age at least in the movies, but how many impossible missions can he do? It should be mission probable or improbable. Impossible by very definition means it cannot be done. And I think for us in the church, we believe in the impossible and that's a good thing, right? We, we believe anything is possible. It's a concept we love to embrace in the church and we should embrace it in the church. Like it's one of the things that comes out of our mouths many times as Christians is we believe in a God who does the impossible and, and that's good. We should believe that. 
But when the Bible speaks of impossible, because I think, here's the problem. I think we get our impossibilities mixed up. Like what's impossible and what is possible. Here's what I mean. When the Bible speaks of impossible, it's referring to something that is impossible for us as human beings, but not impossible for God. Problematically, we as humans sometimes think we can do what really is impossible without God in our own strength. It's actually impossible, but somehow in our minds, we think it is possible that we can accomplish this. And as believers, we can also, the the flip side is we can also become extremely fatalistic about our lives. Hopeless is probably how Peter would refer to it in this passage we're about to read. But we forget that we shouldn't be hopeless because we actually do serve a God who does the impossible. So our text for this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2. Say chapter 2. You know why I had you say that? Because we just got out of chapter 1. It's taken us a long time to get out of chapter 1. As a matter of fact, we might be in this series on the book of 1 Peter until Jesus comes back. At least that's what it feels like. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, we're continuing in our series called Chosen Exiles. And the reason is because the Apostle Peter is writing to believers who have been exiled from their home. They're now in a Roman province of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. We keep talking about that, so you kind of have an idea. Their lives are difficult. Their Christian faith hasn't changed their social setting, hasn't changed their circumstances, as a matter of fact, they're, they're, they're giving their lives to Jesus probably made their, heart, their lives more difficult. So what's Peter doing? He's writing to them, trying to encourage them to hold on to the hope that they have in the grace of God. He's trying to instill hope into their hearts by reminding them who they are because of God's amazing grace. Amen. Yes, they are chosen. They're chosen by God, and at the same time, they're also exiles in this life, literally and spiritually. But Peter's saying, persevere. I know that you're chosen by God, that he has saved you, and I know you're in exile right now. I know you're in painful circumstances. I know you're being persecuted. I know life is difficult, but persevere because heaven is your home, and your hope is in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. God would say the same thing to you and I, church. No matter what you're going through, no matter what your difficulty, no matter what your level of pain in this life, if you have given your life to Jesus, you have been chosen by God, and you are in exile because this is not your home. So put your hope in the grace of God through Jesus Christ that he is with you, and he has a place and a home for you. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore... Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. See, we could stop right there in verse 1 and probably just hang there for, for at least this morning. I know none of us have any problems with any of those things, but we can still talk about it. Verse 2, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Father, we pray that your word would change us from the inside out. Holy Spirit, illuminate it to our hearts and our minds. If you've been here over the course of this series, or maybe you've heard me say this before, but you may have noticed something very quickly as I read verse 1 of chapter 2, the very first word, therefore. And what do we need to ask ourselves? 
What is it there for? Good, some of you, good. What is it there for? Meaning, here's what Peter's saying, meaning in light of what you just heard, this is Peter speaking, or in our case, in light of what we just looked at last week, what I preached last week in chapter one, in these preceding verses, here are some more things that you are to do in light of that. What did Peter just say? Let's give a little summary, if we will. Since you are loving each other constantly, we talked about that last week, because you have had the imperishable seed of the gospel planted in your hearts, because you are God-fearers, we talked about that a few weeks ago, believers, because you care more about what pleases God and is eternal than what is temporary like grass and flowers, because this is the gospel you have responded to by faith, therefore, Here's the therefore, because of all that, all of the amazing things that God has done, therefore, rid yourselves, here it is, of all the things that can hinder your ability to love each other constantly. And can I go out on a limb and say that malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander are probably going to ruin your ability to love each other constantly. Then he goes on, or I'll I'll go on to summarize. So if you have been born again through this word, this imperishable seed of the gospel, you are going to live forever. You are secure forever in the family of God because he caused you to be born again into that family by his grace. And he has called you to live a life holy and pleasing unto the Father. Back to the impossibilities. What is impossible for man, but not impossible for God? Bringing something dead back to life. That is impossible for us, but possible for God. When the gospels speak of impossibilities, it is usually in this framework, resurrection. When the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they speak of impossibilities, or you hear Jesus speaking about this, it is usually within the framework of bringing the dead back to life. Resurrection, Matthew 19, 26, when Jesus said, with man, it is impossible. What is impossible? To be saved. But with God, all things are possible. Yes, all things are possible with God, but what he's saying, what is impossible for you is to bring your dead life back to a new life. But God, through the power of Jesus Christ, can. That's what I mean when I say we get our impossibilities mixed up. We get our impossibles messed up. Because here's where humanity tries to get salvation. We try to say it's not impossible by trying to do it in our own strength. Like if I live a good life, if I do good things, if I live a moral life, if I follow certain rules and regulations, if I uh, uh, attain to certain human philosophies which treat other people nice, if I go to church enough, if I, if I give enough, if I have morality and all these things, then somehow I can do the impossible and make my way to heaven. We come to the conclusion that we're pretty decent people. And surely we all get to heaven somehow. But here's what Peter is saying. Here's what the gospel says. That's impossible. That is impossible with you in your own strength. And along those same lines, let's go a little bit further. As Christians, let's say you've given your life to Christ. Here's some impossibilities that we somehow think are possible. We think we can have the willpower to love each other constantly. 
We think that we can have the discipline to read God's word consistently and apply it to our lives. We think that we can just be generous and patient and kind and loving if we try hard enough. If we, if we try hard enough and give enough effort, we can live holy lives unto God. And here's what Peter would say. Here's what the gospel would say. Impossible. Impossible. This life as a believer is first an impossible resurrection from my dead life to a new life in Christ. And then it is an ongoing work of impossibilities with me, but possible by the grace of God to live a life which is pleasing to him and loving to you. But here's the other mix-up. And maybe you don't struggle with what I just mentioned. Maybe you understand what Jesus said. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's a lot of things that is impossible with me that I need the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in my life to make a reality. But maybe this is where you are. This is where you find yourself as a Christian. You think it's impossible that you can have victory in your life today. You think it's impossible to live a life of victory. It's a somewhat fatalistic approach to your Christian life. We can put it that way. It's, it's like a hopelessness in a life that is supposed to be anchored in the hope of grace that comes from God through Jesus Christ. And here's how it presents itself. It presents itself as a feeling that because of who you are, because of your family of origin, because of your past, because of your struggles, because of your mess-ups, because of your failures, maybe even because of your current circumstances, because of your economic background, because of your ethnic background, because of what all of these things are, that these are just too powerful that I will ever live a life of victory pleasing to God. This just is who I am, and it's going to just kind of be an autopilot Christian life for me. Say, well, I could never be passionate about Jesus. I could never be so passionate about his word like this person or that person. I'll never be like him. I'll never be like her. I'll never be holy like God's word says I'm supposed to be. Can I say to you that the idea that God can save you, but it's impossible for him to sanctify you, is tragic. It's a tragedy to believe that the same God that called you from a dead life and resurrected you to a new life and gave you a new heart cannot change your desires as well. And if we do believe that, here's what happens. It does rob us of hope. The hopes and the dreams that somehow our life can change and that we could be different and that we could grow spiritually because if we're not growing, we're dying. And so that robs us of the hope that we should have for Christian living. Like, I'll never be able to do this. No, that's hopeless. And if that's you, you end up living without any passion for God or the things of God or God's word. Your Christian life, as I said a moment ago, is kind of like just coasting on autopilot. There isn't any excitement about his presence, not any zeal for his name, not any hope in his promises and his word, not any consistency of fellowship in his presence. So you just kind of shrug and just say, well, this is just who I am and this is just how it's going to be. And Peter is saying in the scripture, man, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous for us to believe that. That's nonsense, actually. Don't be ignorant, he's saying, of the power of God through the gospel that saves you. It's like he would be saying to us, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Do you know what you have in the grace of God in Jesus Christ? So in these passages, he just gives us what we might consider a fifth commandment or a fifth exhortation of like desire the word of God. 
That's, that's the command, if you will. That's the exhortation. Why do I say fifth? Because if you've been a part of this series at any point in time, we've talked about the previous four. And maybe you remember them. The first one was set your hope on the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Set your hope in that, not on anything or anybody else if you don't want to be hopeless. Be holy as God is holy. That was the other thing. Have a reverent fear of God so that we don't fear man or what this world can do to us. And then the last one, the fourth one, love one another constantly that we talked about last week. And today, have a desire for the word of God. Therefore, because his readers have been born again, here it is, through the word of the living God, they must desire the pure milk of the word. This doesn't mean that we insulate ourselves and kind of get into a, a holy huddle at our house and hold on till Jesus comes back. That's not what it's saying. It's saying rather describing the juxtaposition between the spiritual craving of your new life in Christ through the imperishable seed of the gospel against the old cravings you used to have that he mentioned kind of in verse one. Remember, you received a new life, a new birth through the word of God. Now you can live a new life through the power of that same spiritual word. You just have to desire it, Peter says. You've got to crave it. You've got to long for that word. The pure milk of the word refers to the heartfelt worship, like the equipping in the gospel, like the word of God preached, like faithful to God's word. Crave those things like a newborn craves spiritual milk in order to grow. And if any of you ever had a baby or a grandchild around or whatever, when it's feeding time and it's longing and craving and desire, you know it. Because I gotta have this to live. And do we, here's what Peter's saying, do you have that same desire and craving and passion for the word that brought you from death to life? For you have that same desire, like you can't live without it. And that desire for nourishment has to be the desire of any church that wants to be known by what we do for God, wants to know the Lord and be known by what we do for the Lord. Of course, just like the Apostle Paul would say, when there is a putting on, there's also a putting off, right? It's like you're going to put one time thing that I put it off and I put it on. This is the rest of your life that you put things off and you put things on. Please don't be condemned by the fact that you got to put some things off again. Don't be condemned by that. Just put it off and put on what you know you need to put on. What do I mean? Put on compassion and kindness and generosity and love. And what does Peter say? Put off, get rid of all deceit, hypocrisy, malice, envy, and all slander. You know all these things? And then there's many others because this isn't an exhaustive list of all the things we need to put off. You know why these things happen in the church? Well, first of all, because we're human. And secondly, because we don't desire, crave, long for spiritual things. And so what happens? Those old ways of our life just fill the void that should have been filled by our desires and cravings for the word of God and the good things that he has for us. It's not that we shouldn't crave, long, or desire. Get away from all your desires and all your And give us a new heart, but does not have the power to give us new desires to cultivate this new life in Christ. It's the same power. You ever go to the beach, get wet, and then get into the sand? It's awful. Like the worst. That's why I stay in a chair, dry, under an umbrella. That's where I live at the beach. That's my safe spot at the beach. But when I was 
younger and my older kids were much younger, I had to engage in all the activities out in the sand, right? And, you, and you're playing in the ocean and then you're getting in the sand and, and they're just rolling around in it like a fruit roll-up. It's like, it's disgusting. Like, and you, all oh, that sand's just sticking on everywhere, you know. And what do you do? You drip them off and you hose them off. Don't act like y'all didn't do that. Or we don't, you just put your clothes on top of all that sand. Y'all are crazy. Don't do that. Like, just, what do we, you just, you cleanse them, right? You, you, you hose them off, strip them completely clean and hose them off so they could get completely clean and rid themselves of all that sand that was covering them. And in Christian literature early on, this is what they would say often, that you would strip yourself of all the vices of your old life and clothe yourselves with all the new virtues of your new life. Take all that off and put this on. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. And the verb rid yourself that Peter is using here commonly refers to washing off defilement or taking off all of those old filthy clothes. So repentance is a prerequisite for receiving the nourishment from the word unto salvation, but it's also a prerequisite of what happens when you do that. So you've, you've put on this new thing for that. It's just irritating. And it's just rubbing you all kinds of the wrong way. It's nourishment from this milk for life. After converting holy lives unto the Lord, we've been made righteous to live righteously before God. We have been rescued so that we can live a life that is pleasing to our Father. Amen. And the growth that comes from the teaching about Jesus the Son and God the Father, that is at the core of God's word. So we are not just saved, but we are also being sanctified. So I want you to notice what Peter commands us to do in verse two, or in essence, what God is commanding us to do in verse two. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, grow your salvation. See, the moment that you think that all I got to do is make a testimony of my faith, go get baptized, and then go do what I want to do, the moment you miss out on what salvation is all about. There is a command to desire. Does that offend you? Nobody's going to tell me what to desire. How are you going to tell me what I should feel? Like, that's kind of what wells up inside of us when you hear this is a command to desire. How can you tell me to desire God? Well, in this text, God commands us to crave what saved us. That's what he's saying. There's a command to desire or long for spiritual desires. So if you feel spiritually stagnant because you don't have the kind of spiritual desires you should, then don't give up. Peter's saying, go after them. Don't quit. Crave them. Don't walk away from your faith. Walk. He's saying this is a command to desire, a command to feel longings we do not feel, a command to feel desires we don't have. And is there anything more contrary to our culture than a command to desire? Like, you, you don't feel it, you don't have to. Somebody needs some milk. <laughs> like, that's a good example right there. I'm hungry. It's like... Do you have these desires? And if not, it's a command to feel these desires. And I'm, in this life, we go like, man, you're not going to tell me what to feel. You're not going to tell me what I have to do. 
And here's what it is. If you can't create these desires, Peter is saying, then ask God to help you. If they're not there, you say, well, if they're not there, they're not there. No, that's what Peter's saying. Don't say that. That's, that's to believe that it's impossible and nothing is impossible with God. Well, I don't have them. Then ask. Peter's saying, yes, you can have these desires. Yes, you must. Like, well, I'm just not a feeler. Well, you are now. Well, I'm just not a singer. Well, you are now. The moment you gave your life to Jesus, you're to sing praise to him whether you can carry a tune in a bucket or not. And the moment that you got saved, you are to feel desires and longings and cravings for the same word of God that saved you so that you could grow up in maturity in that salvation. There's so much to desire. If you look at the Psalms, you see it over and over again. The, the psalmist, particularly David, but it's just like, man, he would talk about what he desired. and He desired, desired God and he longed for God. Maybe the most popular, well-known one is as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after God. He's just, what does he say? He's like, I want that desire. And he's saying, I have that desire. I want to desire God this way. But I don't feel that way toward God, Pastor. And that's that. I just don't. I'm not wired of, no. And it seems so counterintuitive. Listen, I'm with you. It seems so counterintuitive. How can I command myself to have a desire? What can I do to obey a command like that? How do I just produce a desire? It's like telling somebody that's anxious not to be anxious. It's like, what? But here's where the God of the impossible comes in and does what's impossible for us, but is not impossible for him. Did God give you a new life in Christ or not? And if he did, then he can do this impossible thing as well and give you desires for the pure spiritual milk of the word. This is the point. It is impossible with us, but not impossible with God. And this is where I think sometimes we think that somehow this is possible with us. And when we can't do it in our own strength, we just give up. No, Peter's saying, it is impossible with you. You're not going to be able to make yourself do this for very long. But it's not impossible. He commands us to do. See, if God says to desire when we don't desire, then we trust him that he must know something we don't know. He must have some power that we don't have. There must be a way if God commands it. And I can say one of the ways is by us doing something. Like we don't sit by passively and just ask God to zap us with a desire. No, there's some things that we do actively that we train ourselves, as the word says, in godliness. Just like we train, parents train their children in the ways of godliness. It's the idea of doing something that whets your appetite. Like you don't crave something that you've never had. Like I crave big bowls of ice cream sometimes. Why? Because I've had big bowls of ice cream sometimes. I don't crave something that I've never had. So here's Peter, and this is the next point. He's saying you should crave and have the spiritual desire. It's a powerful word right there. If you have tasted of the goodness and the kindness of God, then your life will be different. If you've been born again by the word of God, now you're going to long for that word of God. If you've been born again by the word of the gospel, therefore long for the milk of the word. If you begin your life with the word, then you're going to continue and be sanctified in your life by the word. It will sustain your life in the word. Long for that spiritual milk. That's what Peter's saying. And then I would say, lastly, and ask a question, is spiritual milk Sometimes maybe we're like, hey, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know about that analogy. I don't like that analogy. Okay, that's fine. 
But is it just merely the word of God? Or is it something more specific in the word? Verse 2 through 3 says, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. Verse 3, if you have tasted what? That the Lord is good. Some translations say, if you have tasted the word of God or the spiritual milk in verse 2, I want you to see the connection of tasting of the kindness or the goodness of the Lord in verse 3. See, if you've tasted the kindness and the goodness of the Lord, then you're going to long for and you're going to ask for and you're going to pray for that craving and that desire for that same word to save you, to sustain you. Put them together. You put it this way. Long for the spiritual milk since you've tasted the kindness and the goodness of the Lord. So it seems to me that the milk is the milk of God's kindness and goodness poured out on us. This is what we are commanded to long for. The milk of the word and the milk of God's kindness and goodness. But there doesn't have to be any contradiction there. What we do is we see that Peter is encouraging these exiles to taste the kindness of the Lord. And when did they taste the kindness of the Lord? When they responded to the gospel, the word of God, unto salvation. They were born again by the kindness. Are you revealing or conveying the kindness of the Lord? You were born again by that word, namely by the powerful kindness in that word. Now go on longing for that word, for that word day by day, tasting of the kindness and the goodness of the Lord through his word. See, if the word of God is powerful enough to create new Christians through a new birth, and it's what he does, then the word of God is powerful enough to create new desires in languishing Christian souls. I don't want you to be fatalistic, church. I don't want you to be hopeless today about your spiritual growth or your spiritual maturity, like I'm never gonna change or this is never gonna change. The power at work within you just to bring you to life is the same power that was in Christ Jesus and raised him from the dead, Ephesians says. So it is well able to cause you to live a life pleasing and holy unto God. Can, if God could craving, is the fact that believers have already found spiritual nourishment in their life and they found it to be good and satisfying. See, what I'm saying is, if you know this, you know the grace of God tastes good. If you know this, you know the kindness of God tastes good. If you know this, you know the forgiveness of God tastes good. And because the Lord himself is spiritually satisfying, we are, as believers, to focus our lives on spiritual nourishment and growth. For it's through this kind of growth, training, and development that they will attain. They, that being those exiles, and us will attain our hope of our salvation. And then I think lastly we have to realize that what Peter is showing us is how powerful God's word is in comparison to how powerful our words are. But there is something we both need to understand. Words are powerful. Your words are powerful and God's word. That's why the scripture says the power of life and death is in the tongue and those that eat it love its fruit so that we should speak life. So let me just, in verse one, let me go over these because I really believe that there, there's some of you in this room and maybe all of you in this room are watching. There's some of these things in our lives that have attached themselves like sand on a wet body and they're irritating us because we're trying to not deal with them the way that we should. How do we deal with them? Through repentance and going to God who is kind and good. We don't have to be afraid. We just put off by taking them to the cross and saying, I'm not gonna live this way any longer. What are they? Malice. What is malice? A desire to hurt somebody with your words or your deeds. Have any malice in your heart towards anybody? Deceit. That's a desire to gain advantage or 
preserve a position by deceiving others. What about hypocrisy? A desire to be known or a desire instead of genuine. What about envy? A desire for some privilege or benefit that belongs to another with resentment that that other person has it and you don't. Yeah, that creeps in pretty easily. And then what about slander? All slander, Peter says. That's the desire for revenge and self-aggrandizement, often driven by the deeper desire to deflect attention from our own failings. In other words, the worse light that I can put another in by slandering them, the less I have to deal with the own darkness in my own heart. Ask yourself, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, any of that present in your life? Don't be condemned. Just get rid of it today. Let God wash it off. Let's strip off that old and be raised to a new life. So if you want to experience the desire for God's word, if you want your desires to grow, if you want to taste fully of the kindness and the goodness of the Lord, realize that our satisfaction in God's kindness rises. And when our satisfaction in God's kindness rises, the controlling desires of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander are destroyed. This is really simple. The reverse is true. As you resist those desires and lay them aside, our desires for God grow stronger and more intense. Desire for God increases and our desire for sin de decreases. Peter's point, and I said this already, is don't think that these good desires and these bad desires can both flourish in the same heart. They can. Desire to taste and enjoy God's goodness and kindness cannot flourish in the same heart with deceit and envy and slander. So fight against the spiritual goodness of the Lord through his word. That's why Paul says, remember, your, your battle isn't against flesh and blood, but it's against the powers and the principalities of this world. It's against these schemes and the desires that war against your flesh. The flesh that says, I want to satisfy me instead of please God. And the result, just in case you're thinking that you can't live a victorious life, the result of being victorious in this battle of ridding ourselves of our old life and clothing ourselves in a new life and new desires for the word of God is that in this verse, in the second half of verse two, we're gonna grow up into our salvation. We're actually gonna mature in our salvation. Salvation is reached by growth and make no mistake about it, God is the one who does the growing. But growth is necessary. Don't become hopeless. Don't become fatalistic about your life or fall into this idea that I can't grow. I can't change. I can't be different. I, maybe I don't even need to. Be cleansed by God's word and seek God's word with all of your heart. And here's how we're going to live a life pleasing to God where we're able to love one another as a testimony to what God's done in our lives. That our old life is gone and we have a new life in Christ. If God saved you, he certainly has the power, as impossible as you might think that it is right now, to sanctify you and change you and cause you to mature and to grow up into your salvation that you've been saved to do. I want to encourage you in that church this morning. When we sing this last song about the power of what Christ has done, what death didn't know is that Christ has victory over death and hell and the grave. And if he has victory over that, then he could certainly have victory over your old desires. That's nothing for the one who raises the dead back to life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to ask this question right now. Would you ask 
because I believe the Holy Spirit's already revealed it. As I was reading that list a moment ago of the things that were supposed to be, the hypocrisy or whatever else might be there that you know shouldn't be, that you've got to get rid of today. I want you to come to the Father who is full of kindness and goodness, mercy and love, and repent. Say, God, I, I have slandered my brother or sister in Christ. God, I have envied this and this area. God, I have, I have had malice in my heart towards my brother or sister. I, I, have, I have done all these things or I've done one of these things. Whatever it is that God has shown you, man, it could just be a little bit somewhere, but it's chaffing your spiritual life. Get rid of it today. Let the word of God wash you clean today. The same gospel that saved you is the same gospel that can wash you today and sanctify you today and cause you to grow in your salvation. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then today can be the day that you come to a place of repentance and forgiveness and give your life to Jesus. Thank you for listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at InFocus Church.